Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Duberback from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. This week, Google Play announced that they are working on providing third-party billing options for select partners doing this globally. They'll be starting with Spotify. So what this means is that essentially the option for a user will be to either pay for Spotify through Google Play or directly through Spotify. And uh, Spotify will be paying some service fee back to Google. Those exact details have yet to be disclosed. Google has been doing this in South Korea because a law mandated it. And arguably, they're probably trying to get in front of a bunch of other laws that are going to mandate it. One is the uh, Digital Markets Act in Europe, which uh, part of its its core value add is that it will allow businesses to promote their offers and conclude contracts with their customers outside of a gatekeeper's platform. Yeah, this is uh, an interesting experience experiment by Google. That's uh, that's how they're positioning it. We were trying to figure out exactly what the significance of it is. Uh, they talk about it being an experiment in user choice, but the user pays the same fee regardless of whether they go through Google Play or the direct Spotify billing. I could foresee a scenario where a user doesn't have a billing relationship set up with Google Play and they want to subscribe to Spotify and they don't really see themselves subscribing to other things. And so they enter the billing information with uh, with Spotify. But it's really not much of a an experiment in user choice. Um, on the other hand, had they allowed Spotify to offer the direct billing at a price lower than what was available through Google Play, that would not have been much of an experiment either uh, because, of course, uh, people would opt for the the less expensive option. So as best we can tell, it's kind of a let's meet in the middle uh, kind of experiment where uh, under the arrangement, Google would take a lower cut of the revenue if the user opted to sign up through Google Play, but Spotify would be able to collect a bit more revenue uh, on a direct billing relationship if users went through that path. Um, One of the interesting what ifs that this leads to is, is this the kind of situation that Apple uh, would be willing to accept if it were forced to allow alternate forms of, of billing in the app store, they might take a slight revenue hit, uh, but it would at least provide some flavor of choice, even if it wouldn't provide the benefit that people really want from the choice, which is lower prices. So, Sean, do you think this would allow Apple the degree of uh, control and revenue stream assurance that would be uh, would be acceptable to them, given that you know, let's just accept off the top that they would probably fight against this tooth and nail, but but regardless, if, if they were forced to accept it. This is a move we've seen time and again from Google, and it really positions them in a very different light than Apple. Ross, I think you're exactly right that Apple tends to fight against these type of changes, and they argue it's because they're trying to protect the consumer. And if you, you know, you think about the FTC's mandate, when it comes to antitrust, 
their mission is to protect consumers and and then you know secondary competition from being anti-competitive and you know unfair business practices and so Apple has always really taken the stance of we are protecting consumers by ensuring that the app store works well, that payments are secure, that users aren't going to be deceived or defrauded, uh, which are also kind of pieces of the FTC mandate to protect against deception and and things like that. So it feels like they're always trying to align themselves with the mission of the FTC, whereas Google seems to early on see the the writing on the wall and and enter into these type of experiments where they are willing to let go of some of that control. Uh, We saw it with the uh, paying newspapers and uh, news for for uh, in search. They were kind of quick to try to just get on with the party and and do what looked like the, the regulation was going to mandate. And then what it ends up doing, I think, is really setting up this very stark contrast between Google and Apple, because a- Apple also tends to come out and say, this is going to be really hard. And, you know, we don't think we can do this without the negatively impacting the consumer. And then Google comes in and says, hey, we're going to do this and let's just try. We're going to start with Spotify. Then we'll uh, certainly Spotify says that it's still an important issue to them. I don't think they would have pursued this. I don't think they would be so aggressive in the Coalition for App Fairness. Uh, they've been uh, testifying before regulatory bodies, uh, you know, for all of the ad-driven revenue that they collect from their free service. A big reason why they offer that service is to create a pipeline of paid subscribers at, at some point, you know, some uh, particularly, I think among younger users, the hope is that as they get older and have more disposable income, they would opt for a paid a Spotify a service. So, I do I do think it's important to them. Uh, a couple of comments on what you said regarding the contrast between Apple and Google, uh, in terms of Apple taking the stance that it is the protector of the users. They have gone further than that recently and saying not only is it a role that we think is important, but it's a role that users tell us, our customers tell us, is one of the reasons they specifically buy Apple products. So they've really made the case that it's not just about this revenue collection uh, services uh, stream part of the business, but really part of their core business of, of selling devices, and they claim it to be a purchase motivator uh, for, for their devices. Other thing I would note is that I agree with you regarding the contrast between how Google positions a, a lot of their actions here versus Apple, but it really doesn't seem to have garnered them much sympathy. Uh, you know, look at, look at the case of allowing multiple app stores uh, on the platform. This is something that Apple has uh, really put its foot down and said, there's no way we can do this uh, without it opening up Pandora's box. And it's, of course, something that Google has allowed essentially from day one. You know, there are a few hoops you have to jump through in order to get an alternate app store uh, onto an Android phone or tablet. Uh, but for example, Amazon's entire tablet business uh, is, is based on that 
on that feature. You know that they can they can get the uh, the Amazon App Store on there, uh, and you don't have to deal with Google's App Store. Although there are some also trade offs from that, in that if you pass on the App Store, you're also passing on a lot of the technological underpinnings of uh, many of the in-demand Google services, such as Gmail, Google Maps, uh, uh, YouTube, uh, that's a big one, uh, etc. Uh, the, the last thing I, I would offer on it is that, you know, when it comes to the assurance and fraud protection, you might think that Apple would say, okay, uh, or, you know, someone might propose, I should say, uh, that uh, Apple could approve a, a group of payment processors uh, saying, you know, you have to use one of these five guys, uh, Stripe or, who, you know, whomever where we have confidence and in the integrity uh, and we don't have to worry so much about the fraud uh, because we're confident in their fraud protection. But then I think Apple would come back and say, oh, look, if we have to go through the trouble of certifying these guys and keeping an eye on them, that is just another example of the kind of work we do to support the platform, right? And one of their, uh, another of their major defenses for the fees has been, hey, we are constantly investing in the platform and there's no reason why developers should be able to capitalize off that for free, right? These are services we're providing to developers, and that's what justifies uh, our our take of, of the revenue. In addition to more broadly, you know, the R and D and keeping the platform attractive uh, and and creating a, a a good environment for for the app. So. Uh, a, a lot of different elements here, both uh, on the Google side uh, and the Apple side, but but it is one of several examples that we saw this week of some of these uh, these platforms, these gatekeepers making at least minor concessions uh, as they as they contemplate more more regulation and and more backlash. And I think there's also some desire among consumers to move away from letting these gatekeepers have full control over every service. So we started by highlighting the friction that exists, the fact that the prices are the same. So on the surface, it may not look like it, uh, it is a difference for consumers and they would, wouldn't care. But I think some consumers might care. They might, uh, some might prefer to run it through Google and just use Google mm -hmm or the, the payment, and they're already using Google for payments. Sure, or other right. things. especially if they're the incumbent you know, payment method. So and, they have a huge advantage, yeah. And, and others at the same time may want to have that payment experience be directly with the service provider. So if they you know, needed a refund or if they wanted to question a charge or, or just remove themselves to a further degree from these gatekeepers, then they can do that. So it will be interesting to see if we ever get stats on on what new subscribers opt for and how they opt. It'd be interesting to see that. Uh, we also mentioned early on that uh, Europe has what they're calling their Digital Markets Act that could pass this week. It's a proposed new piece of legislation that uh, we saw announced in December of, of 2020. So they've been working on it now for uh, for some time. And it's really, its core purpose is to minimize the 
role that these large gatekeepers, tech, you know, tech companies have. Some U.S. legislators feel like it unfairly targets U.S. tech companies, but a lot of these big tech companies uh, that that are gatekeepers think of Meta, Apple, Google. They are U.S. Uh, companies, and so. Uh, you are seeing Europe take a stronger stance against them, trying to uh, remove some of their their unfair, what they see as unfair practices. And uh, so we should see that legislation move forward here, if not this week, pretty soon. Ross, you mentioned other big news, and uh, we saw a lot of news this week around the streaming services and how they're making subtle changes and how they interact with not only consumers, but also each other. Uh, Apple appears to have removed the ability to buy and rent uh, movies through the the um, Apple TV app for Android TV and Google TV in a new update that was released this week. So if you haven't updated, you probably can still rent and buy through Apple TV on either of those, those platforms. But once you've updated, you won't be able to uh, at the same time, Google announced that they're going to remove movies and and TV uh, rentals and purchases from the Play Store starting in May of 2022. And you'll be able to, in the future, instead rent, buy, or watch movies and shows through the Google TV app. Now, this one seemed a little more straightforward that, uh, that they would do that. And we've seen them do that before. For example, moving music off of the Google Play environment and letting it be a standalone app that can can compete side by side with the other music apps like Spotify or Amazon Music. Uh, so we see how we access content and how we will will rent content uh, shifting there. We also saw news this week from YouTube that they're going to make nearly 4,000 TV episodes available for free with ads in the US and they plan to add up to 100 shows and movies each week. So you see a continued push towards ad-supported content as well as uh, that particular su subscription model, you know, continues to uh, to decline for paid TV services. You're seeing uh, the number of platforms and we talked about it last week uh, trying to produce more TV content and make more of it available through ad-supported options. Yeah, we talked about that last week a bit with uh, Amazon closing on the purchase of MGM. In terms of the Google TV, this to me represents a marginal rationalization or continued rationalization of, uh, of Google's uh, TV, movies and TV uh, offerings. Uh, Sean, as you mentioned, I, I think what What's happening here is that at the dawn of Google uh, of uh, Google Play, the Google Play Store, uh, Google had this idea that it would be this one-stop shop for everything digital you would want to purchase. Uh, and in the many years since then, we've really seen music and movies and TV, by and large, start to shift to these subscription models. So there's a lot less a la carte purchasing going on. Uh, there's still, you know, with, with the music, Google did a, you know, really put the hammer down and said, okay, YouTube uh, music is really going to be our, our music uh, offering, and it's going to be a subscription offering. And 
you know, that's where we're going to send people. Uh, the TV stuff is still a little bit divided between Google TV and YouTube TV, which you could uh, roughly comparable to the difference between Apple TV and Apple TV Plus in that uh, TV Plus is, you know, a service from Apple and YouTube TV is a service from Google, uh, even though they're very different uh, offerings. And whereas Apple TV is kind of more of the platform that Apple offers to host Apple TV Plus and a whole bunch of other services. And the same thing for uh, Google TV uh, as, as this underlying platform. So, so what happened, you know, it, it gets really complicated, but, but Apple TV Plus was one of the services available on, uh, uh, on Google TV, the platform. Uh, and some of the speculation is that, that Google started to become more stringent about enforcing their 30% cut, which may have put Apple, uh, um, which may have forced Apple to, to, uh, to wear, you know, put itself in the shoes uh, of, uh, of its vendors complaining uh, about this 30% cut. And if that is the case, and, and you know, that is, that is an assumption, it's funny to note that it just pulled, pulled it rather than pay the, the 30% cut. Uh, I wonder how they would react to a number of their service providers doing that. Some do, you know, like uh, just not allowing transactions uh, through the service. Uh, but uh, but this is, uh, you know, a, a continued, uh, you know, re refinement of, of what we're seeing. And, and really the first, uh, in terms of the 4,000 movies, one of the biggest moves we've seen from Google since it moved away from original uh, content uh, creation. So, And I think that Google will be hesitant to consolidate all of its video streaming services into a, a single platform. I think it probably strategically is keeping Google TV separate from YouTube because there is so much conversation in Washington, D.C. about breaking up some of these large companies. And if they have very well-defined lines where you can break pieces apart, then it uh, you, you know will make it much easier for regulators to do that. So I think uh, Google probably wants to keep the Google TV platform with Google and not with YouTube. Should YouTube ever be broken out as, as its own business, YouTube TV would probably then at that point develop its own operating system and Google TV would start to roll out more original content. Uh, so I think you'll continue to see companies try to find that very fine line between having integrated services and, and also uh, you know, keeping all of a, a like service uh, operated. You've seen Meta do this, for example, where they are trying to integrate messaging across platforms and posting across platforms and and doing everything that they can in order to uh, remove the lines that once ex existed between what were separate companies. The last thing I wanted to just say about Apple TV Plus on Google platforms is that on the TV front, maybe because uh, it's one of the less mature of the Apple subscription services with a lower subscriber count, uh, they have been far more, far less aggressive about 
giving up uh, control uh, on Apple TV Plus uh, on the Google platform. They've they've done a good job of getting Apple TV Plus on a range of platforms, uh, so you can get it integrated into just about all of the major smart TV platforms. It's available on Roku. It's available on uh, Amazon Fire TV. And as we mentioned, it's available on Google TV. But oddly, it is not available on Android phones, uh, whereas, for example, their music service uh, is available on Android phones. And uh, not sure what their rationale is there. Maybe it's just a development priority. It is available on the web, so you can get it on uh, on PCs where there may not be a, a native uh, application. And I think it works on Android tablets through the web as well. Uh, but again, for some reason, they uh, they haven't uh, they, they they've abstained from creating a, a native Android app version for for phones and tablets. Uh, or maybe they just feel like. You know, even even though that's a massive installed base, and Google TV as a set top platform is a relatively small installed base, uh, maybe they feel like to the extent that people are going to consume this content uh, better for them, you know, they'll they'll have a better experience doing it on the big screen. So that's where the priority is, despite the lower installed base. In other news this week, we saw that uh, we continue to bring workers back into the office, and that creates some interesting dynamics for these hybrid work environments where some people are at home and some people are are in the office. We saw announcements this week from uh, Microsoft. We also saw announcements from Zoom this week that they are launching avatars, which will let users show up to meetings as uh, essentially Memoji-like animals, and they'll be adding new video filters. So uh, Zoom has saw their, their stock price skyrocket in the early part of the, the uh, pandemic, and it has since trailed down as people start to go back in the office, and we talk about Zoom fatigue. So they're taking a, a, a arguably a play out of what we have seen from the the you know the likes of some of the social platforms allowing them to turn yourselves into avatar and and maybe blending towards the metaverse as well as we start to think about how we will keep engagement on these platforms and this is a topic that we really haven't addressed in a while we addressed it uh, quite some time ago about the consumerization of Zoom, of how they started out as this business platform and they were going to show up in all these uh, consumer devices, really hasn't happened uh, the the way, or at least as quickly as uh, we were led to believe uh, we would have Zoom on all these devices. But uh, as you mentioned, Sean, this past week was a a big enterprise conferencing show, Enterprise Connect. Uh, Microsoft had a whole slew of announcements. Cisco's WebEx division had a whole slew of announcements. Uh, Part of what they're working on is that when we were all remote and we did these video calls, everyone showed up in their own little box. Now that people are going back to the office, you've got the remote people in their own frame, and you've got the people in the conference room as these tiny little figures sitting around a table. So one of the things that these companies are working on is 
breaking out the faces of these people sitting around the table so that uh, they have uh, as much of a spotlight on them as anyone who's remote. It's kind of funny how the tables have turned in that in the past on conference calls, people who were remote really had a hard time participating in the flow of the conversation. And now some of that has, uh, has reversed, but, uh, but, you know, particularly with the, I, I think these, these big enterprise uh, conferencing guys, uh, Cisco, Microsoft, Crestron also had an announcement uh, last week about acquiring some video AI company. They really see this hybrid work opportunity as a way to gain back some of the momentum that they may have lost to Zoom during the pandemic because Zoom had the free offering. And so it was what people naturally migrated to, uh, even though it was really intended more as a corporate customer acquisition play than a consumer play. But uh, consumers, of course, were eager to uh, to go to a- any port in a storm. And uh, that was the one that was available. So I think, uh, you know, to your point, Sean, this... Uh, you know, this ability to show up as a cat or a space alien or, or whatever. Uh, also, going back to the pandemic where we had that hilarious uh, incident with the Texas lawyer who showed up with the cat filter that he wasn't able to turn off. Uh, you know, it does uh, certainly lend a degree of levity. Um, I think it's it's on point with this uh, relaxing of some decorum uh, at uh in, in terms of how we interact with each other professionally, uh, LinkedIn doing a whole TV ad campaign around that right now. Uh, but uh, but I also wonder if the tides will shift a little bit now that folks are coming back in the office. And of course, you can't show up there in, in your sweatpants or your pajamas. So uh, So we'll have to see what impact that has as well. Well, and the other thing that we saw Zoom used for heavily in the pandemic wasn't just work, but it was also happy hours. It was social trivia nights. It was family gatherings. And I think that that piece of Zoom has probably fallen off. So bringing avatars and emoji like animals maybe helps revitalize their consumer piece of their business where families get together once a week to to talk, uh, even in a world where we aren't confined to our houses. We'll end this episode of Techspansive there. Again, I'm Sean Dubervac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>